and welcome to Buena Vista. This is episode four of The Theophiles. I am Ben, and I am here in the set of irrational numbers, existing pleasantly in a way that can't be defined as the ratio of two integers. With me, of course, is Theo, a mathematical constant that can be expressed as the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. Hello, Theo. Hey. How are you going? I'm great. How are you? Good. Do you like any digits? <laughs> I've got digits got? for days. <laughs> you do have digits for days. What if it turned out that um, there was magic in the numbers of pi? You know, like the whole, oh. you know, it's a secret code in there. Yeah. Could be and anything in there. That's how we knew that, like, the simulation was real. Yeah. This is like a legal notice. So the problem is that by that defi- definition, pi also would encode the 14 words. That's true. The extremely racist number and also the kindest number. <laughs> Do we know, if, like, I'm not a, you know, a maths whiz. If you have an infinite set of random numbers, mm. it's essentially what pi is, right? Yeah. Not random in the sense that they're, you know, but like... But if you take them statistically, they are the digits are, are random yeah. and they, they're uniform, yes. Is the certainty that any sequence of numbers will appear in there 100%? I believe so. That's wild. And again, that sequence of numbers would encode the racist 14 words yeah. made famous by... Mm-hmm. Uh, the mad Germans. dictator of the Third Reich, <laughs> Adolf Hitler. Okay. But it will also maybe uh, contain the lyrics to Informer by Snow. Oh, that is nice. Yeah. So, you know, there's real ups and downs there. <laughs> Um, I am going to tell you a story, mm-hmm. and this is a story about a moral panic. And we as a society love those, and we particularly love moral panics as they relate to the youth. Mm. You know, every single generation is absolutely convinced that whatever new thing the kids have is fucking society up forever so you know generally it's like a new piece of technology or it's some new fad or whatever you know it's uh in the 80s they were like oh dungeons and dragons is making kids into satanists uh you know all things along those lines where there's not really anything that's happening there there was obviously like satanic panic was a massive thing generally where they're like well this is what the kids are doing they're doing human sacrifices Uh they weren't things like back masking and rock and roll Yep. All that sort of stuff. Uh, but this one is from way before any of those things. This story starts in 1816. Uh, <laughs> this kind of gives the game away, but this is from a website called bicyclenetwork.com.au. <laughs> I know exactly where you're going. <laughs> in the terrible European summer of 1816, volcanic ash clouded the sun and snowfalls killed the crops. The titanic eruption of Mount Tambora in far-off Indonesia had plunged the whole world into a frigid gloom. In Germany, horses were slaughtered for the food they could provide, and the prolific inventor Karl Dreis of Karlsruhe in the southwest of the country turned his mind to an alternative. Good lord. I didn't realize bikes were so dark. It's a very insane thing to be like, all right. So, there's a volcanic eruption A great darkness has covered the earth. All of the horses are gone because we ate them. We ate for their flesh. In 1817, we had the Lauf machine, which became known as the Dreisine, a transport solution that has gone on to become today's bicycle and provide cheap mobility, independence, and freedom to millions of people around the world. 
Dreis wasn't the first person to put two wheels in series, but he added steering and the concept of the bicycles. Yeah, launched. well, classically, Good the call. other models. <laughs> <laughs> Where That's- are you going today? Exactly in front of me. <laughs> that is the one place. Oh, well, have a pleasant time. <laughs> Uh, these the Lauf machine became insanely popular in France. Uh, they became to be known as velocipedes, which I love very Incredible. much. Incredible, yeah. Uh, in 1864, a Parisian carriage maker named Pierre Michaud had the genius idea of adding pedals to the device. Uh, this is 47 years <laughs> after people had just like thing. start at the top of a hill. You're fucked. Well, they'd been flintstoning around on them. Oh. That is, so for half a century, people were like, there must be another way. <laughs> uh, this in turn led to the development of the penny farthing uh, because people wanted to be able to go faster. Yeah. Obviously, if you have a larger wheel, one rotation means a longer distance. That's right. And Without that's why. the complex gearing that we have today. Yes. So you have the penny farthing, but obviously... For that very same reason, the amount of torque required to get that going is a lot it's more. Yeah. yeah. So you have to be quite physically strong to use a penny farthing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also other things about them that fucking sucked. Uh, the, they had no form of suspension or anything of that nature, mm. but they also didn't have pneumatic tires either. No, okay. So every bump in the road, you're going to feel felt. that. Yeah. And, and you're so, going to feel that right up in your... Right in your gooch. In your nooks. And, and it was a, it's a really common problem as well that but just because of the way they were shaped, you would hit a bump and you would go flying over the handlebars <laughs> forwards. So it was considered a very masculine pursuit because, uh, I mean, you literally couldn't ride one wearing a dress. You also just, you had to be quite physically strong to do it. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't a practical or viable transport solution. I mean, basically, th- the way the penny farthing was used back then is exactly the same way it's used today, is that eccentrics use them. Absolute freaks do it for fun. Okay. So, like, we kind of think of penny farthing as sort of something that's quite dandy, or, mm. whereas it's sort of more like their time's chainsaw. Yes. It's exactly the same. You have to be a very cool, strong guy yeah. to use the penny farthing. Although, yeah, uh, this is if you ever see someone on a penny farthing, you have my full permission to bully them. It's an awful pursuit. Their, their life is forfeit. It is second only to the unicycle in mm. terms of worst wheeled contraptions oh. you can travel on. You know, one like once a year, you'll see someone like riding around the streets of Brisbane on a, on a unicycle. It just ruins your day. I saw There's someone no call for it. Like fucking eat shit <laughs> uh, on a unicycle in King George Square once, oh. and it was just wouldn't, I like I, that make the, you I year. nearly stood up and applauded. Like oh. it was just so good. I used to see one all the time walking to work in the city. He'd be on, like, the river walk. I'd just be like, fucking... He's, like, looking around, hoping yeah. people hey. will look at him and hey. notice. Hey, yes. hey, I'm on a unicycle. I am on a unicycle. You fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, this... The bicycle wasn't really popular the, uh, in the form of a penny farthing. Uh, but the 1880s and the 1890s saw the development of something called the safety bicycle which is essentially the bicycle that we have today. There are a bunch of different designs, but the diamond frame that we use now Mm. arose in that period. And we've basically since then been like, this is fucking sick. So its key features were uh, they started putting pneumatic tires on them so that they they weren't quite so fucking awful to use. Mm -hmm. Uh, The frames were lighter. They had gearing, not changed gearing, but, you know, there's a smaller gear where the pedal is to a large, no, the opposite of that. Large gear where the pedal is, small gear to the back. Whichever one works. Yeah. So you had a better ratio there. The tires were the same size. And 
you could, like a normal person could use them, essentially. That was the great strength of them. Uh, the advent of this, the modern bicycle, turned the bicycle from a thing for hobbyists and weirdos into a practical transport option for everyday use. I would still say that weirdos can still use a bike. They can, and but not precluded. it's not a requirement anymore. Okay. It's optional <laughs> to be an absolute fucking freak and get on your bicycle. Uh, it was much easier than looking after a horse. It was faster that, than walking. Ain't that the truth. Yeah. And a bicycle doesn't have a mind of its own. No. It can't disagree with you. You can't have a Socratic dialogue <laughs> with your bicycle unless you are one of the freaks Horses, the bicycle. wrong kind of teeth. They do have the wrong kind of teeth. Well, I don't know if someone loaded the wrong texture. It's just... What we were doing that. It's not right. The more time I spend with my mum's horses, the more I'm just like, one of these days, one of you is taking one of my fingers. I can feel it. Yeah. I just know it's going to happen. So, you know, all of these are positives, right? They sort of open them up to uh, parts of the middle class and some of the, like, richer parts of the working class. And they made you able to cover much longer distances, which, you know, obviously, fantastic. Unfortunately, this was also the start of the end of society. That is true. Which is a shame. You can plot a direct course from the safety bike. To now. Yeah, to coronavirus. <laughs> to the shame. novel coronavirus. Uh, so I'm going to read you some excerpts from uh, the 11th volume of the Brooklyn Medical Journal. It's published in 1897. It is an article written by a medical doctor named E.D. Page. The name of the article is Woman and the Bicycle. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and it begins as thus. Much is being written and more said upon the above topic. The cycle for women has its votaries and also those who condemn it. The writer, for various reasons, can see where it is a source of injury. And for these reasons, its use as advocated and recommended by the profession should be conservative. Uh, so he, he then launches into tackling, tackling the several aspects of the woman on bicycles debate as he sees it. The salient features of woman on bicycle. Yeah. The key points. Uh, he starts with the supposed health benefits. Uh Physicians and others advocating its use by women claim that it develops the muscles of the arms, legs, and body, as well as those of respiration, thereby increasing chest measure. Now, I don't think what he's saying is... This will give women bigger titties. No. <laughs> Although, have we tried? <laughs> have we considered it? Um, also that it is modifying the dress of women so that she is naturally more healthy from the fact that tight lacings, corsets have to be discarded or so modified that the abdominal muscles as well share in the general benefit. This, aside from the pleasure of cycling, appears to constitute its leading benefit, i.e. that it makes woman a stronger animal. Oh, all right. So several notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is he is he saying that? So there's health benefits because you have to take your corset off to ride it. Yes, which I think which he's they probably considered doing something there. Yeah, but they could probably just get rid of the corset anyway. They don't right. need a a bike as an excuse. Well, that's a very controversial claim. And he will get into that. Well. <laughs> This fucking sucks, but, <laughs> but we have, we have to. not considered any other options. We haven't invented the bicycle yeah. yet. Uh, second of all, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes woman a stronger animal is a very strange phrase to me. Extremely odd. Uh, it's use for woman as a necessity cannot be established, as only the working class would claim it on that ground as a means of getting to and from business. And as we know, mm-hmm. not... <laughs> Not where women go. No, no, because unless you're working class, women don't do anything. No. So why would they need it? Uh, the cost of the machine, keeping it in repair and storage for winter, make it a luxury, hence not expedient. 
the writer claims that the principal muscles developed in its use are those of the leg and thigh. That little muscular development of the arms comes from it, as there is comparatively little use for the arms in cycling, except in mounting and dismounting, as when one becomes thoroughly master of the cycle, very little effort keeps it balanced and guides it, which are the principal uses of the arms in the erect position in which women ride. That the muscular action of the legs and thighs may increase their size and firmness, less with the ankle movement, however, is true, yet this is also true. That women ride so long and steadily, they, quote, run the flesh all off them, as they say. <laughs> and this is the tendency. As they say. I don't know who is quoting here. Uh, there is a fascination about it that leads to immoderate exercise, and then it is positively <laughs> harmful in a general way. Uh, I can't get a lead on this guy. Are big thighs good or bad? Does he like... I think he's sort of does making... Does he like it dummy thick, or is he... <laughs> He's making a concession here that maybe it is healthy, but they do it too much. They do so it too much, not. so all of their muscles fall off. Yeah, the flesh, they run the flesh all off them. Uh, <laughs> last week, we forbade a patient the wheel altogether <laughs> and sent her away to the country for a change. <laughs> this is some classic 1800s doctor shit. No more bicycles, go we, to the country. We forbid the wheel. <laughs> we forbade them the wheel. I love that people make fun of deadwood for like having modern day swearing or whatever because if they were like <laughs> if they wrote the wheel, sir. <laughs> everyone just sounds stupid and that's true people from the past sound dumb as hell <laughs> Very fucking dumb. Uh, she had wheeled away about 15 pounds this summer <laughs> legs thighs arms chest and all her muscles had decreased in size here overdoing it yes <laughs> but that is the tendency <laughs> That is the harm. So his argument is that women get hooked on cycling yeah, they, and they, and they get, get too, too shredded. <laughs> um, so this argument about the health impact of bicycling, bicycling, bicycling if yeah. you will. Uh, well, this- that's the way you do it. <laughs> that's true. I do it both ways. Uh, it was widely used as a proxy just to stop women from doing it. Yeah. Right? Because as we'll get into it, there are a lot of reasons why they don't like it. But the health one was the one that they thought sounded like the most rational. So this is from a different article. This is from an 1897 article, same year, in the National Review from a medical doctor named A. Shadwell. Oh, they don't have... They've all but just got initials. Didn't have first They're names back then, E.B. Yeah. Farnham, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. T. Bartholomew, Hogswallop. Uh, the after effects of cycling, says an experienced rider and one accustomed to far more violent forms of exercise, are quite different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> PT Cruiser, a bear wrestler, <laughs> tries his hand at the wheel. Um, the, these after effects are quite different from those of any other outdoor exercise with which I am acquainted and less pleasant. Even a short ride leaves me with a pallid face, a palpitating heart, the beginnings of a headache, and a tendency to insomnia. <laughs> I've been riding my bike all day, and now I can't, I can't sleep, sleep anymore. <laughs> Another speaks of the, quote, peculiar form of nervous exhaustion, and, quote, <laughs> that strained feeling which led to insomnia and headache. A third, the, quote, holder of many cups won on the running path and river, Declares himself, quote, quite unable to cycle, as even a short run on the machine at the easiest of paces gives me a severe headache. A fourth, sufficiently robust to have covered 150 miles of hilly road in a day, confesses to, quote, having experienced the unpleasant sensations described. 
A fifth who has ridden every sort of machine from the bone shaker onwards. Come <laughs> on. <laughs> from the bone shaker onwards, onwards is my favorite black metal band. <laughs> Tonight's headline is Spring Me the Horizon and From the Bone Shaker onwards. Uh, testifies to having experienced, quote, great nervous exhaustion, loss of appetite, restlessness at night, and the next day, a very low, irritable, depressed feeling. A sixth, quote, victim to the errors of cycling, <laughs> suffered a complete breakdown after 12 years riding. <laughs> During which, quote, nervous symptoms and weakness of the heart's action gradually grew upon him. After going abroad to regain his health, he took it up again with the result that my heart and nerves have suffered perhaps beyond repair this time. He was blaming everything on the bike. I love the fucking quietness of being like, well, I Uh, went to Spain to get better. I I suffered a wandering wife after three days on the wheel. (laughs) A seventh assures us that the, quote, symptoms complained of, headache, insomnia, etc., were known and recognized as an evil 16 or 18 years ago. We had two decades of the evil of cycling <laughs> ruining everyone. It's basically ancient history by this point. So Shadwell says that it's not just the physical exertion of riding a bike that does it. There must be some other peculiar aspect of being on a bicycle. An injury of the soul. A spiritual (laughs) quality to it. Uh, He goes as thus. Various causes are assigned for these nervous troubles. Some blame the saddle, others the vibration or the mechanical defects of the machine. And no doubt anything which increases discomfort tends to aggravate the mischief. (laughs) (laughs) All these factors are common to the tricycle, which has been found void of offence. So the tricycle he's referring to uh, is not the tricycle as you would maybe oh. picture it. Imagine if you took the two, two big penny farthing wheels, mm-hmm. put an axle between them, yeah. had a seat above the axle oh, okay. and pedals on the axle, yep. and then one little stabilising wheel the out back. the front. Or well, yeah, generally on the front, I think, right, for some okay. reason. Yep. Uh, but this was what women went in because you would sit in it like it's a carriage. Okay. Uh, yeah, so he's saying that those don't cause those women to go insane. Yeah. yeah. The vera causa seems to lie in the extreme instability of the two-wheeled machine, which can never be left to itself for a single moment without dismounting. <laughs> <Cannot> trust. <laughs> I've seen cyclists at traffic lights. You can stay balanced. They do it all the time. Mm. So when I used to ride to work, there was one day that I kind which of- Which is a very big ride, by the it way. Is a, it's a it's long, an enormously it long is ride. It's a long way to ride from Good where Lord. I live to, to the city. Um I kind of got to I I'd I'd gone over Tui's Hill, which sucks immensely, and I got to like to the bottom, and I um I use cleats, mm. and I sort of arrived at a because um, you're a professional at the uh, um crossing the pedestrian crossing, but bikes use it. I and I pressed the button, and that button press was enough to. <laughs> Just give me that little destabilizing nudge I needed oh, no. to tip. And the whole process took about 20 <laughs> seconds. You sort of try to angle the, the wheel to counterbalance and I your just fall. Went, and I fell straight over in full view of like, you know, 20 cars. Um, so I... Wait, is this how you hurt yourself that time? No, no, I hurt myself. Um, so Caitlin and I were... we've There's a bike path near us and... Um, I was riding along and we kind of went, a- went around a bend and when I got around there, there was 
a man and a dog just stopped in the path all mm-hmm. of a sudden. So I hit the brakes very very quickly, but there was like a dip in the road there. So when I hit the brakes, my wheel wasn't touching. And so when it hit the ground, oh. my wheel just stopped and I went head over the bike um, and slammed my head on the on the ground. Um, the guy like was very, very nice and his dog was, was kind of cool. And, um, <laughs> and I was absolutely munted uh, until I threw up and then I was good. Uh, and then the, then the dog I- ate the, the sick... So you got the bad humours out of your body. I got body. extremely bad humours. Uh, the the, the got- humours contained dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> well, dogs love that, they, and they do. They, if you if you want to give your dog a treat, just vomit some <laughs> vomit some dumplings for them. Have a head injury. Have a head after having eaten massive, dumplings. Massive head injury. Uh, I went and did a. Um, my my quantum physics exam the next day. Oh my god! They, I call up QUT and they're like, yeah. We can't promise you that, like, if you don't come in, that we won't fail you. So, so probably the best thing to do is just to come in and take the exam and then apply for special consideration afterwards. Because oh. due to the, you know, the the massive head injury that you just suffered, <laughs> that we can't do anything about. God, good lord, my humours were fucked. <laughs> uh, Doctor Shadwell continues. In this respect, bicycling differs from any other occupation, whatever. The strain of attending to it may not be very great in itself. Sometimes it is and sometimes it is not, but it never ceases. And this incessant tension is the thing which tells upon the nerves. How incessant it is, the demeanor of most riders declares with an emphasis which still excites ridicule, familiar as the sight has become. Some time ago, I drew attention to the peculiar strained set look often associated with this pastime and called it the bicycle face. (laughs) The general adoption of the phrase since then indicates a general recognition of its justice. Some wear the, quote, face more and some less marked, but nearly all have it, except the small boys who care little for croppers. <laughs> is, this, is this still the doctor, by this the way? This is still a medical okay. doctor, uh, published in a like, national magazine. Has anybody ever seen persons on bicycles talking and laughing and looking jolly like persons engaged in any other amusement? Never, I swear. Doubtless they can at a pinch, but in practice they don't. All their attention is given up to the road and the machine. With set faces, eyes fixed before them, and an expression either anxious, irritable, or at best stony, they pedal away, looking neither to the right nor to the left, save for an instantaneous flash, and speaking not at all, except a word flung gasping over the shoulder at most. It is this strange and unhuman gravity which excites the ridicule and hostility of the street cad and the dull-witted rustic alike. (laughs) Even idiot country people (laughs) think they look dumb. (laughs) I'm trying to think what the the Monday equivalent of this is. Of the bicycle face? Of the bicycle face. I... And I remember one day I was standing in front of uh, Brisbane's Brisbane's own Roma Street Transit Centre. One of the great transit centres in the world. Which no longer exists. (laughs) Um, In the process of being demolished, I would say. And I was getting coffee and there was a man in full suit holding a coffee, riding down the road on a longboard. That rules. That was he riding it rule. competently? Yes, extremely that's competently. That's extremely cool. Like, competently or incompetently? Extremely competently. That's fucking cool as shit. I support this guy. No. He's the one suit that I support. God, he had a ponytail. 
I am off the this guy <laughs> trade. I've off left. Team Longboard. Uh, so so far we've got uh, it makes women waste away. Yes, it causes the bicycle face. Uh, there are other concerns. So this is back to our friend Dr. Page in the Brooklyn Medical Journal. Uh, it's also changing how women dress. Shock. As to the changes in dress, which may be of benefit to women, we all hail them. And yet, we are bid to ask if these changes are permanent or only for the purpose of enabling her to ride the wheel more easily. Does she modify her dress so that she discards her tight lacing when she enters the drawing room, or does she return to them? If the former, then it is a reform. If the latter, then it is not a reform, and she has to work harder at night to bring her corsets together than if she had not used the looser-fitting cycle corset during the day. <laughs> you can't go back to the constrictor because you've been unconstricted all day. A reform is also claimed for the shorter dress skirt, carrying with it comfort and freedom of gait not afforded by the longer skirts. The short one is easier, but does not a woman resume the long dress skirt after the day's cycling and when she returns to her home? Where the reform then, except for just the time on the wheel, its only object there to enable her to ride easier. A real reform is one rather that she couples with her daily life and duties. And isn't it true that in these she discards bicycle, suit and all? If so, where is the dress reform? Where the argument for it saves you apply it to woman on the wheel. So he's doing some Ben Shapiro this is style extremely... facts and logic. Yeah. So he's saying, oh, well, maybe it is good we're reforming women's dress, but we're not really we're doing not it. not really because they're getting back into they're it. They're just putting the normal clothes back on after yeah. they're on the bike. So uh, checkmate leftists, you're done. Uh, he continues here. As to the suits worn, many of them are neat and natty and perfectly modest. <laughs> But they are modest in proportion as they approach the ground. Our civilization requires that a woman from the age of puberty on should wear a dress reaching the floor. Its object seemingly to protect her from comment, a question of delicacy, and is a custom which is firmly fixed. Stage women and Mary Walker seeming about the only exceptions <laughs> till the advent of the cycle. So Mary Walker was uh, an American medical doctor who she was a a big figure in the abolitionist movement, and she was also uh, a big figure in suffragette movement as well. Yeah. She wore pants, is what he's alluding to here, is that there are a lot of dope old-timey photos of her wearing, like, uh, she's got a fucking Civil War-era military outfit yeah. on. She's doing, like, the hand-in-the-pocket thing. Yeah. Uh, it's just people just falling into an aneurysms, like, wherever oh, she walks. She got arrested multiple times. Uh, there's like a, a, I was reading about it today. There was a time she was arrested in New Orleans where a cop arrested her because she was wearing pants and was like, well, have, you, have you even had sex with a man before? Which is a weird taunt to throw at a woman. Uh, is it true then that all else have been wrong and that Madam Walker was really right, even though the object of adverse criticism all these years? Well, if it's so bad, the, yeah, why do the, some people not want change? <laughs> Uh, is the cycle is the cycle to teach us this reform? If reform it be, if cycling will teach women to lace less and show her that a more perfect health, in a measure, depends upon a freedom of action of all the muscles of her makeup, then give it that full reward of merit and let us hail the reform, even though woman's waist measure is several inches greater as some of its graceful tapering may have disappeared. You're losing that hourglass, yeah. and he's real depressed about it. God. This guy just lives for that dump truck ass. He does. Uh, he also really didn't like some of the other solutions that women came up with uh, for clothes that they could wear while they were on the bicycle. 
The different kinds of bloomers and open skirts make their wearers objects of ridicule more frequently than otherwise, and we have heard the most caustic remarks passed upon the wearers of some of these styles of suits, and justly. <laughs> <laughs> they're we're right to ab- abuse yeah, these they're women. They're being harassed in the streets, and I, as a medical doctor yeah. writing a medical journal, support this. The public streets seem no place for such. Others discard all suits worn by women and simply wear tight-fitting men's suits. Comment is unnecessary. <laughs> if a woman wears and appears on the streets in a man's suit or some of the extremes in bloomers and open suits, she seemingly forgets she is a woman. That's because gender is fake. That's largely what's happened yeah. here. <sighs> uh, the press reported recently the case of a lady teacher who, in bloomers, appeared before her class of boys being too late to change her suit as was her custom. The guying the boys gave her broke up the class in tumult. <laughs> <laughs> hate it when that happens. It's just boys being guying. <laughs> just boys guying gals. Uh, it caused her to be summoned before the proper board for an explanation. Why was that improper dress for her as a teacher, if not as a lady? Women have been known to dismount and try to defend themselves from the criticisms of onlookers which were overheard by them, considering themselves insulted. The ability of a woman to defend herself from insult is commendable, but... She forgets she invites the criticism by her dress in the first uh, place, and her sensitive to the criticism, criticism is acknowledgement of its justness. <laughs> so because you're upset that people insulted you, they were right to yeah. insult you. <laughs> what a prick. This uh, guy sucks so for, much. For a woman to defend herself under such circumstances seems unnatural and untenable inasmuch as she aims to defend herself in a wrong position. Such defense is not intended to increase in any degree the respect she tries to enforce. So he continues here. Said a doctor friend to me, what if she does show her legs? The idea of a long or short dress is all conventional. True. Yet in countries where no dress is worn at all, 75% of the inhabitants are illegitimate. (laughs) I'm not sure about his statistics there. Incredible. Uh, The manner of dress there is conventional also. These extremes in dress give give a carriage to our women oft times that is open to criticism and invites the comment of the onlooker. All writers are thus frequently classed. Sorry, all writers are thus frequently classed alike as bicycle women, <laughs> which is unjust to those modestly dressed. It oftentimes lessens the estimation in which women are held by men. A married patient purchased her first pair of cycle boots. When the shoeman had laced them to the height of her usual boots, she said, "That will do." He stopped, looked at her in the face, and said, "Young woman, you'll show your legs a good deal higher than that before you have rode a bicycle long." He then raised her dress to her knees and laced the boot to the top amid her confusion. Five years ago, that would have cost him his dismissal. Today, woman submits to it because it is a fad. This is the first step in the loss of modesty and delicacy, elements of character peculiarly woman's, and which are her protection and her charm. Now, I disagree with that entirely because I would say modesty and delicacy are my two favorite traits in you. Oh. It's a real cross-gender sort of thing. That could appear in anyone. Anyone at all. Anyone at all. Somehow, the reasons that I have given to you so far... Which are ironclad. Ironclad. Uh, they are not the worst ones that have been offered. Okay. <laughs> and here, here, here are we go. some I will account. The bicycle also teaches masturbation in women and girls. 
The subtle resting huh. against the labia majora, Here as it go. does by a slight inclination forward, it is easy to accomplish it. It also injures the labia, and the bruising and chafing therefrom compel the rider to forego the wheel until recovery. Four cases of this kind have been under my observation, and one of masturbation. Yeah, I bet you've been fucking watching the masturbating lady. <sighs> In securing material for the moral side of the question, the rider visited West End at Coney Island. Hundreds of cyclists checked their wheels there, <laughs> going down the boulevard. Scores of girls under 18 years of age are seen there in bicycle suits, some accompanied, others being followed by strange men, till occasionally their company was accepted. One, about 16 years of age, we saw enticed by a beautifully dressed woman, brackets, a prostitute in cycle suit, to take a glass of wine. <laughs> Those days you could just say, I saw someone get sucked off. Yeah, no, it has to be a, a prostitute in a cycle suit. <laughs> My favorite Credence Clearwater song. <laughs> he was encouraged to have a drink, if you know what I mean. One of the six young what? men who had joined <laughs> in this scheme talking, ordered the wine. Is he talking about fucking? Yeah, I assume so. <laughs> One of the six young men who had joined in the scheme ordered the wine loaded. We heard him. Is that like putting spirits into your wine, maybe? I, I must, it has to be. And this is the, the bike's problem. Yeah, this is what this the is bike does. This is because of the bike. Uh, the girl was sued in their power and was being marched off for immoral purposes amid the delight of her captors who agreed among themselves not to give it away. She looked like an innocent child, but was away from home influence. The girl at that age had not power to resist all that influence, keen and friendly at first, but commanding as soon as she was intoxicated. Hundreds of girls slip down there by this means, unknown to their parents, and scores are ruined thereby. These girls are not bad girls naturally, we believe, and would not have been so, save for that visit there per wheel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if it wasn't for that awful bicycle. <laughs> Making my, my beautiful, perfect daughter. <sighs> Uh, otherwise, they, they would have been at home, or at least elsewhere, other than being subjected to the so vile influences. So, is the problem that they can go too far from home? Like, yes, it's given them mobility. And this is the same thing that they said about the car when it became sort of affordable for young people right. to have one. But there's sort of like a, a horizon, if you can imagine, like, dad sitting on the on the porch. <laughs> and he's watching and, his daughter yeah. disappear over it. And she's like, well... Until now, has been well. This is as far as I can walk without yep. ruining my my humours. And I'm going to turn around. It was a four hour walk to Blowjob City, <laughs> and now it's a 27 minute ride. I <laughs> uh, just really like the end of that paragraph where he says, uh, "Otherwise, they would have been at home, or at least elsewhere, other than being subjected to the vile influences of West End." Usually, when I hear that, I think of say white people getting dreadlocks. Yeah, mm. <laughs> different times. Up in New York, we hear, has its trysting place where scores of girls <laughs> check their wheels and lay themselves open to most regretful comment. <laughs> Roller skating became unpopular because of a few unfortunate cases of wrongdoing. I have no idea to what this is referring. No. In the slightest. Uh, the protection of a large number of skaters being present meantime. Judged from the same standpoint, isn't it true that many more indiscretions occur through the medium of the wheel than did through roller skates? <laughs> Certainly true. <laughs> and if so, why protect the one and condemn the other? The riding astride is also too mannish to be proper for a woman. So something happened with roller skates and everyone's gone, nope, <laughs> no more. It's just like so, so indelibly baked into their, like, 
common zeitgeist that <laughs> don't need to explain that. <laughs> everyone knows what everyone happened with knows. the roller skates. Oh. The daughter of a patient is engaged to a young man, an ardent cyclist and a member of a cycle club, but he insists that his fiance shall not learn the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> Takes his own bike and just breaks it. He will never learn the wheel. <laughs> this wheel is not for you. The fellow feeling of bicyclist leads her to accept the words of strange men as well. The wheel serving as the go-between. Mm-hmm. There is no more an excuse than the fact that each have feet. <laughs> you don't have anything in common just because you both ride bikes, all right? <laughs> this is how he concludes the article. To measure, select, and utilize all the different elements that enter into our complex and shifting civilization in such a way that the good may remain and the bad be excluded is no mean task. The education of the moral and the intellectual side of our natures unquestionably results in the highest degree of civilization possible to attain. Other things being equal, the stronger the animal, the stronger the intellect. The part the wheel plays... I don't believe that that's true. Lions have 150 plus IQs. The part of the wheel plays the moral side of women's life seems, on the whole, of questionable advantage. Now, I keep accidentally saying women's life or women's whatever. Mm-hmm. In every single instance, he has said of woman's life. Of He's woman's talking of life. womanhood as a whole. Uh, the part of the wheel plays in the moral side of woman's life seems, on the whole, of questionable advantage. Not but the thousands ride unharmed, but that the thousands don't. What the duty, then, of the former toward the latter and the community toward each? Judged by the standard up to the advent of the wheel, it certainly cannot be endorsed. If, on the other hand, less care in these respects is to be required of woman, and a shifting of the standard is to be made, some of the extremes of suits seen thus early provokes the question, where will it end? And what the final result upon woman? (laughs) She began with her ordinary style of dress and with a tricycle, and she already rides tandem dressed in men's suits or with loose-fitting trousers without skirt. As to the exercises making her stronger, that may be true in many cases, yet the dangers to her health in toto seem possibly greater than the promised benefits, and many of these dangers are a constant menace to the practice. So far as this matter enters into the health of woman, it is a question peculiarly the physician's. So far as it touches upon the moral life of woman, it is also a question in which he is more or less interested as a member of society, and the prestige of his profession gives him an opportunity to be a positive factor for or against. And we believe that after a thorough discussion of this matter among physicians, the wheel will be disfavoured for reasons of health alone. In this, we are aware of the great diversity of opinion and of the varied professional experiences, and that the future will lend additional light upon salient points. While as to its moral effect, there is a steadily growing understanding of public sentiment that it is degrading woman. Wonderful. So he's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Women aren't allowed to ride the bike. We decided to throw no, every bicycle I, into the sea. <laughs> I, I love historic examples of like scientific minds being just completely wrong. There's Holy this fuck. quote I read from, um, from uh, Rene Descartes, who um, was like, if the speed of light is finite then my whole world is fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it is, buddy. (laughs) Uh, So that guy obviously was an absolute crackpot, although he did represent a fair chunk of public opinion, but it was not the only opinions available on the subject at the time. There were some nice ones. Some other incredibly normal opinions. So, you know, a lot of the stuff he's saying is fucking insane, but also it did represent 
a new kind of freedom that middle class women didn't have before, mm. right? Like the traditional view of the world was that uh, men, well, women had inside the house and women had every single other place in the world. And that was just how that operated. And that was sort of very easy to police. Whereas now they could just, they could take the 27 minute ride to Blowjob City. That was available to them. Yeah. Or they could just go visit friends or they could explore. So this is a lovely quote. Uh, from bicycle enthusiast Maria E. Ward in her 1896 book, Bicycling for Ladies. Riding the wheel, our own powers are revealed to us. You have conquered a new world and exultingly you take possession of it. You feel at once the keenest sense of responsibility. You become alert, active, quick-sighted and keenly alive uh, to the rights of others as to what is due yourself. To the many who wish to be actively at work in the world, the opportunity has come. It's quite nice. It's nice. So another nice one here. It's a bit florid. Uh, this is from playwright <laughs> Marguerite Merrington in an 1895 article she wrote. Now and again, a complaint arises of the narrowness of woman's sphere. For such disorder of the soul, the sufferer can do no better than to flatten her sphere to a circle, mount it, and take it to the road. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I began to feel that myself plus the bicycle equaled myself plus the world upon whose spinning wheel we must all learn to ride or fall into the sluice ways of oblivion and despair. <laughs> it's true today as it was. Oh, it's so true. Back but how nice does it feel going for like a big bike it's, ride? It feels absolutely wonderful. The world is your oyster and it's not like when you're in a car where you're separate to the environment That's around right. you. Yep, you're taking it in, you can smell it, you, you can, can hear see it, it, you can yeah. feel it. It's wonderful. You have an actual sense of speed, which is very, you know, you're quite divorced from it in yeah. a car. Plus it masturbates you. Yeah, and that's the best thing is that uh, every man loves to have their balls uh, kind of squished (laughs) for a very, very long time. uh, I completely understand the rationale behind uh, the type of cycling lycra that has the padded area around the Mm. sort of taint, Uh, but it looks very funny. It looks incredibly funny to protect your taint. It does. I would rather experience taint pain than have the taint protector on, but uh, (laughs) I guess I'm just different that way. Uh, so that concludes the moral nightmare of bicycles. I believe you have something for me. Oh, Ben, I do. Now, may I ask you initially a question? <laughs> I'll allow it. What is the what is the stinkiest thing in the world? Uh, when potatoes rot. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, I when I first like moved into my own place in Brisbane. I bought a big bag of potatoes, grand plans, <laughs> coming undone almost immediately when I uh, smoked my weight and weed and forgot that the potatoes existed for about nine months. Yep. Uh, and then the whole thing just, yeah, it's it's awful. It's, I don't know it's what sort terrible. of alchemy makes a potato go bad, considering mm. how hardy they usually are. Yeah, but- it's, it is odd, but there's a, there's a turning point, isn't there? Yeah. There's just that, that titration of... Rot. You need one part to go bad and the whole thing will. In my experience in the four and a half years I spent working in the produce department at various supermarkets, mm. I've smelt every kind of bad fruit or vegetable smell that there is to be had. And potato and watermelon are by far yeah. the worst of we, each. We Similarly, we, we grew some watermelons just like from seed in the backyard and- it was great, but then the crows started getting at them. They just poked holes in them once they were like mid-sized, mm. and then they rot from the outside in, and they just turn absolutely rancid. We are one of the 
supermarkets I was working at, we got a delivery of, you know, we get watermelon in these like 300 kilo cardboard bins and a rat had gotten into oh, a bunch no. of them. So it had eaten its way into the inside of the flesh and then allowed that to be exposed to the elements. And holy fuck, that was one of the worst days mm. of my life. No, Very thank bad. you. So probably about a week ago, I had the thought, what what is the smelliest thing? What is the, like, so smell is a sense serves to warn us, you know, from things that are rotten, that are, you know, th- we shouldn't go near. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to know whether there were smells that were so bad on their own as to be hazardous to life. Oh, like the same way that something could be so loud, it could deafen you, so bright, it's it could blind you. Sort of like a Lovecraftian smell that separates the body and the soul. Um, yeah, I actually, I learned a fun thing the other day because I was, I don't know who I was talking to about this, about, you know, how like... A bright flash can wake you up if you're like asleep and that your eyes will see. Yeah, and like lightning goes off or whatever. Yeah, yeah. or a loud sound can mm-hmm. wake you up. You cannot be woken up by a loud smell. Interesting. Your smell does not wake Seriously. you up. Seriously. Yeah, because I, so I think it was in the context of someone saying that they were like, oh, the the smell of something burning woke me up, and I'm like, I don't know if your brain is processing smell. And I looked into it, and it doesn't. Fascinating. Yeah. So I kind of went down this rabbit hole of of smells, a smelly <laughs> little hole. I went down. <laughs> So, let's start at the natural. Have you ever had a durian? Yes, I have. How's the smell? Bad. Bad. It's quite bad. (laughs) They're they're like banned on public transport, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So, uh, novelist Anthony Burgess, who I believe wrote um, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, Um, that sounds right. I mean, I'm looking at the two copies of Clockwork Orange you have over there. Are they both written by Anthony Burgess? Burgess. Okay, (laughs) thank you. Uh, so he writes that eating durian is like eating sweet raspberry blanc mange in the lavatory. <laughs> uh, <laughs> travel and food writer Richard Sterling says its odor is best described as pig excrement, turpentine, and onions garnished with a gym sock. How like, good is language? Oh, Just I you love- can describe anything with words. I feel like we've we haven't travelled far from the last story. <laughs> Um, it can be smelled from yards away. Uh, despite its great local popularity, the raw fruit is forbidden from some establishments such as hotels, subways, and airports, including public transportation in Southeast Asia. Um, other comparisons have been made with the civet, which I'll get to, sewage, stale vomit, skunk spray, which I'll get to, and used <laughs> surgical swabs. Oh, Possibly the worst no. in the entire Because list. that opens up a world of that is, possibility to I me. I do not like that. A lot of viscera. Inside um, the human body. So what, when I was when I was reading through this stuff, what I what I wanted to understand is why these things smell, right? What makes what makes these things smell, and how far can we take that, mm-hmm. right? So um, the the wide range of descriptions for the odor of the durian may have a di- great deal to do with the variability of the durian itself. So different species have different aromas. So some, you know, smell like turpentine, while others smell like roasted almonds. Uh, in 2019, the researchers from the Technical University of Munich identified ethanethiol, uh, which we'll come back to as well, uh, and its derivatives as a reason for its stinky smell. But we don't really know how it gets there as far as the enzyme that produces ethanethiol. Um, so they mentioned civets. These are kind of, it's, it looks like a cross between a weasel and a coyote. <laughs> okay. Uh, C-I-V-E-T. So a number of vivid species secrete civet oil. Aww. So yeah, um, 
Oh my god, yeah, it's like a jaguar weasel. That's the cutest thing I've ever it's, seen. It's very cute. Um, uh, I enjoy finding a weird new animal, so to find this in this was great. Um, oh my god, I love this thing. So most civets, um, and they, they call the scent civet oil, which is from their perineal gland. <laughs> um, they produce them in African farms where African civets are kept in cages for this purpose. Uh, they typically produce three to four grams of civet per week. And in 2000, civet sold for about $500 per kilogram. It's a soft, almost liquid material. It's pale yellow and fresh, darkening in the light and becoming salve-like in consistency. Its odor is strong, even putrid as a pure substance. But once diluted, it's pleasant and sweetly aromatic, which is also the case for like ambergris. Ambergris, yeah. yeah. Um, that like, it sucks to smell unless you're only smelling a, a little bit of and it. And then it rules then like, to smell. And then you're like, oh, this is really, really less is more. Um <laughs> And then, of course, yeah, you have the classic skunk, mm. Hell's Weasel. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a rat that's French. <laughs> um, so, you know, they, they are notorious for their anal scent glands. Um, and, well, same here. Um, so they've got two glands, one on each side of the anus, which produce the skunk spray, which is a mixture of a sulfur-containing chemical, such as thiols, which, again... We'll come back to the files are a, a a heavy hitter in the stinky world. <laughs> sure, um, traditionally called mercaptans, which have an offensive odor. Skunk spray is powerful enough to ward off bears and other potential attackers. Um, so the chemical defense was illustrated by Charles Darwin in the Voyage of the Beagle. Um, we saw a couple of zerillos or skunks. <laughs> I don't know why. Why didn't we keep with that one? I wonder. I don't know. So much spicier. Mm. Um, odious animals, which are far from uncommon in general appearance. The Zerillo resembles a polecat, but is much larger and much thicker in proportion. Conscious of its power, it roams by day in the open plain and fears neither dog nor man. <laughs> Incredible. If a dog is urged to the attack, its courage is instantly checked by a few drops of the fetid oil, oh. which brings on violent sickness and a running at the nose. Whatever is once polluted by it is forever useless. <laughs> Good Lord. People are very... They, they just, could turn a sentence. They thought about every sentence for two months. Well, yeah, I guess if you're like sending and receiving one letter yeah. a year, you're just like, how can I say that the smell fucking sucks? <laughs> Um, Azara said that the smell could be perceived at a league distance uh, more than once when entering the harbour of Montevideo, the wind being offshore, we have perceived the odour on board the Beagle. Oh my hey, what's God. that smell? Well, imagine a, a rat. Think bigger. There's a very stinky rat in Montevideo and it's ruining my day on this boat. Uh, certain it is that every animal most willingly makes room for the Zerillo. Oh, that is gorgeous. <laughs> so, you know, predators don't don't attack skunks, presumably out of fear of being sprayed. Um, it's made of three low molecular weight thiol compounds, and the low molecular weight part is important as well, which um, I'll eventually get to. Mm. Um, E2-butene-1-thiol, 3-methyl-1-butenethyl, and 2 quinolaminthyl and that was very brave of you to leave that there intact, so you had to say it out loud. Absolutely. Um, as well as acetate thioesters of these. I remember in chemistry class, we made uh, esters, mm -hmm. um, which typically 
uh, make like a large uh, large proportion of like artificial smells. So if we want to make a smell that smells like bananas, Me- methyl esters, you, you go it? to the the esters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wait, no, is that sorry? The only esters I know are the ones that are used for identifying beer faults. Cool. So maybe methyl esters are the ones that uh, taste like butterscotch. I think, but yeah. Anyway, that's that's like there's a a classic like. There's a handful of that it, you just know uh, your beer has this in it that yep. it shouldn't, or maybe it should. And something's on. gone wrong there. Yeah. There you go. So these compounds are detectable by the human nose at concentrations of only 11.3 parts per billion. Uh, there's also the shore earwig. Um, <laughs> so they're voracious predators, highly regarded as efficient for pest control in many situations. Repugnatory glands in the earwigs cause them to secrete a foul-smelling pheromone to deter predators, which is said to smell like decomposition. Uh, there's the Amorphophallus titanum, um, which is a flowering plant with the largest unbranched inflorescence in the world. So right. mm-hmm. put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> no sure. But before you get too excited, the telepot palm has a larger inflorescence, but it is branched rather than unbranched. Oh, well, that doesn't count. So, um, so due to its odor like that of a rotting corpse uh, it's characterized as a carrion flower so i think one of these opened in uh, botanic gardens cans? In, in is it the cans something one? like that quite recently yeah but maybe I, I used a year to 18 months ago fucking, when i was writing pedestrian anytime it happened in an australian botanic gardens yeah. i would write about it because i love that shit and i'm like hey go check that shit out um so it releases these to attract pollinators, just the worst, the most disgusting insects of the world. Hey, guys. Gang, stinking it up. <laughs> Want to um, smell something fucking gross? Come over here. So it gradually increases from late evening into the middle of the night when carrion beetles and flesh flies are active as pollinators, then tapers off. So it actually gives the impression of rotting flesh, attracting yeah. flies to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so analyses of these chemicals released uh, include... Dimethyl trisulfide, like in Limburger cheese, dimethyl disulfide, um, thi- uh, trimethylene, which is rotting fish, isovaleric acid, which smells like sweating socks, oh. uh, benzyl alcohol, which is a sweet floral scent, huh. oh. uh, and uh, phenol, like chloroseptic, and indole, like feces. So those are the stinkiest things in nature that I could find. Mm-hmm. Which, so like... Smell is not an intrinsic material property of the universe, right? No. It is something that our sensory organs take something and then assign smelliness to it. That's exactly that's that's right. So there is it's it's um particular shapes of of molecules Mm -hmm. come together to react in in certain ways in your in your nasal passage to provide you know electric impulses to your to your brain. Yeah, in, the, and in, in kind of the same way that the universe doesn't have color. Yes. We have eyes that interpret certain properties, materials, and the way light reflects off them is color. Yeah. So, from a, like from an evolutionary standpoint, a lot of natural smells being bad, as you were saying, generally makes that's, sense. That's exactly right. We're tuned to, to that, yeah. But there would be things that would be maybe, say, extra evolutionary. I don't know how you say that. Outside the realm of... yeah. It is not the response we were designed to have to them, just incidentally, by the way smell is constructed. That's right. So, for example, Parmesan cheese mm-hmm. has contains a chemical um, that, and I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong, so apologies if I get this wrong, but um, I believe it shares one of the same um, 
like aerosol molecules as is contained in vomit. And experimentally, if you label one one thing and one another way, it can influence your impression of um, and your positivity towards that smell. Sure. So right? if you just try and convince yourself after you've thrown up that it's actually parmesan Pums and cheese. cheese, you're good. Yeah. Yeah. You just punch yourself in the head. Get, erase your short-term memory because that's how I believe it works. Yep. You go, ah, oh, there must be some parmesan on the floor here. And, sh- and you're good to go. Um, but I I really wanted to see the limits of this, right? So the limits of, of human smells. New frontiers. What a series of words. The um, limits of human smells. So the, I mean, of course there's, um, you know, th- there is our naturally produced smells, which are, tend to be um, things that are incompletely digested by the stomach um, and small intestine arrive in the large intestine. And you get fermentation um, by yeast or prokaryotes, uh, all that sort of thing going on um, to make farts. But we've used... I, I, I wanted to find out as well whether we've actually used the concept of smell in in warfare, in something that can actually hurt other people. And there was the um, the classic, like, examples of um, people in sieges loading up siege equipment with carrion or corpses, sure. all of that sort of thing. Um, like putting a rotted cow carcass in the back of your trebuchet and then hurling it into their castle. Exactly. Um, but that tends to be more for the... Um, for the disease that spreads. So during the Middle Ages, um, victims of the bubonic plague were used for biological attacks, often by Holy flinging them over fuck. castle walls using catapults. I mean, that's kind of one and the same, though, for them, right? Because their belief was it was the smells themselves. That's exactly right. So yeah. bodies would be tied along with cannonballs and shot towards the city area, which is absolutely fucked. That is a, a nightmare. So in 1346, during the siege of Kaffa, uh, which is now in... Crimea, um, the attack, attacking Tatar forces, uh, which is um, subjugated by the Mongol Empire under Genghis Khan more than, more than a century ago, uh, used the bodies of Mongol warriors of the Golden Horde who had died of plague as weapons. So an outbreak of the plague followed and the defending forces retreated um, and the conquest of the city by Mongols followed that. Um, and it's speculated that the operation might have been responsible for the advent of the Black Death in Europe. Oh, my God. Yeah. And as you said, at the time, the attackers thought that the stench was enough to kill them, Mm. um, though it was the disease that was deadly. So you are actually, you are dying of the Black Black Death. Yeah. Um, So at the siege of Tunlevik in 1340 during the Hundred Years' War, the attackers catapulted decomposing animals into the besieged area. And in 1422, during the siege of the Karlstein Castle in Bohemia, Hussite attackers used catapults to throw dead but not plague-infected bodies and 2,000 carriage loads of dung over the walls. (laughs) Sure. But we have to go stinkier. Sure. There are still stinkier frontiers to explore. We must plumb the depths Uh The stinky depths. Um, So... Ethanethiol, which, as you recall, was one of the things that were in durians, the smells mm-hmm. that, um, commonly known as ethyl marcaptan and stench. That's one of its names. <laughs> I nailed that one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've got the classic uh, compounds. You've got hydrogen sulfide. Uh, you've got 
uh, chloric permanganate. Uh, you've got stench. <laughs> Uh, it's a clear liquid with a distinct odor. Uh, it's an organosulfur compound, abbreviated ETSH, consists of an ethyl group, ET, attached to a thiol group, SH. Its structure parallels that of ethanol, but with the sulfur in the place of the oxygen. So this sulfur thing will come back. We've got, there's a series of, um, when, when you kind of move along the periodic chart, if you move in certain patterns, you can swap things in and out in the same spot and get much the same effect but but increase kind of like in um the movie evolution the movie evolution that is the single most that scene i was like 12 and pissed and off like, about it <laughs> like it just like well they're carbon based no we're carbon based and arsenic is poison to us and they're uh, nit- selenium based no selenium was poisonous to yeah, them because it was in the hair Yes, but they they were nitrogen based and it was selenium that was poisonous to them. Something like because that. Because yeah. you can make an L shaped movement to get to it, and I'm like, yeah. that is a completely just... arbitrary thing. Lots of things are poisonous to us. <laughs> Lead right. is poisonous to us. <laughs> oh so, god! But in this case, it works. Um, so this is the sulfur I'm so glad one. You said that, by the way, because I was thinking it. I was like, well, there's no way anyone else would have remembered that. <laughs> um. So the but the odor of it is infamous. It occurs naturally as a minor component of petroleum, but is otherwise added to, to otherwise uh, sorry, but is added to otherwise odorless gaseous products such as LPG um, to help oh, warn of gas leaks. Right. So this is the thing that they add. So at those concentrations, ethanethiol is not harmful, but we use that's amazing an infinitesimal amount of it just a it tiny is, little speck and it, it smells so, bad it is so powerful that <laughs> that it, it is literally had hazardous to health to smell ethanethiol it's yeah, right. not good uh, it's got a strong disagreeable odor that humans can detect in minute concentrations the threshold for human detection is as low as one part in 2.8 billion parts of air um its odor resembles that of leeks onions durian or cooked cabbage but is quite distinct so the employees of the Union Oil Company of California reported first in 1938 that turkey vultures would gather at the site of gas leaks, um, and they kind of narrowed it down to traces of ethanethiol mm. uh, in the gas, that the it must be shared with something that's decomposing. Yeah. That the, the vultures went, well, that's it. That's Th- my, there's food over that's here. That's my dude. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go and eat that. <laughs> um, and so that's where they got the idea to boost the amounts that you could that humans could detect oh. gases um, from, from gas leaks. And that's a fucking great idea. Um, so going down further the stinky hole, mm-hmm. um, this is an, a kind of snippets from an article by, by a guy named Derek Lowe who writes um, – I can't remember the name of the blog. It's it's quite florid, so I've had to cut a lot of it down. But um, one subtopic that he has is things that I won't work with as a as a chemist, right? Um, so he's talking about here uh, selenophenol. I'm gonna have to work out how to say that 400 more times. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so he kind of gets into that um, sulfur compounds are stinky, which we were talking about about mm-hmm. before. Um, but it's a problem that continues as you move down group 16 of the periodic table. 
Um, and it's not like plain phenol itself has no odor, no odor. So we were kind of talking about those sulfur compounds before. It's strong, penetrating, completely unmistakable. As soon as I get a whiff of the stuff, I'm immediately transported back to the Versa Clinic, the small hospital, uh, the small hospital town I grew up in back in Arkansas. Phenol smells like an old-fashioned medical office. Um, so they used to use it for disinfectant. Um, so if you move that down a notch to sulfur, you get thio, uh, thiophenol, which is related to the ones that we were talking about before, which is easy to describe. Burning rubber, the pure, potent, platonic ideal of burning rubber bottled up and daring you to open the cap. But move one more element down and you have selenophenol. And that's a more exotic re reagent. The chemical literature has numerous examples of people who are at a loss for words when it comes to describing its smell, <laughs> but their attempts are eloquent all the same. Um, a few years ago, Gaussling at the Lamentations on Chemistry blog referred to it as the biggest stinker I have ever run across. Imagine six skunks wrapped in, wrapped in rubber inner tubes and the whole thing is set ablaze. <laughs> That might <laughs> that might approach the metaphysical stench of this material. Good lord. <laughs> um, organic synthesis, circa nineteen forty four, features the note that um, it is frequently advisable to work with selenium compounds on alternate days. That same prep also notes that you can produce small amounts of hydrogen selenide, which is very toxic indeed. Um, this luckless graduate student from the 1920s got to experience both of these bracing selenium room fresheners in the course of his work. Berzelius described the poisonous effects of hydrogen selenide quite impressively. In order to get acquainted with the smell of this gas, I allowed a bubble not larger than a pea to pass into my nostril. In consequence of its smell, I so completely lost my sense of smell for several hours that I could not distinguish the odour of strong ammonia, even when held under my nose. My sense of smell returned after five or six hours, but severe irritation of the mucous membrane set in and persisted for a fortnight. Oh my god! Um, the writer had been working on the gas for some time and has also seriously affected once the injury persisting for many days uh, that is more poisonous than the hydrogen sulphide is well known. So these are compounds leading up to seleno selenophenol. Um, so you have to make these things to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and at the destination, um, which nobody makes, this is one of those things that nobody makes because it sucks. <laughs> sure. Like it's notorious for sucking. But this is from 1908. Um, when... Uh, not even say that acid in solution is treated with reducing agents such as hydrogen sulfide, sulfur dioxide, or best with zinc and hydrochloric. Um, so when uh, I'm not going to say that acid is, is you know, in solution is treated with reducing agents such as hydrogen sulfide, sulfur dioxide, or best with zinc and hydrochloric acid selenophenol is obtained as a yellow oil with an overpowering and most nauseating odor. The odor of Diphenyl diselenide is extremely disagreeable, but not nearly as bad as selenophenol. The effect on the skin is very similar to that of thiophenol, forming blisters which itch intensely. After a time, these dry up, the skin scales off, and there appears to be a deposit of red selenium beneath it. Oh. The odor of selenophenol is very penetrating, and it is nauseating beyond description. <laughs> <clears throat> Don't you hate it when your skin sort of sloughs off and then sloughs you're like, off, oh, and then it stinks for There's months. red selenium on me. What the fuck's going on? 
So, I I don't think at this point I've gone. I I don't think I've arrived at the stinkiest element yet. Sure, there's still furthermore, and I wanted to know why why this is why why things are so disagreeably disagreeably smelling in in like such small components. And I found this this article, the scent of a molecule by Sam Keen. Um, there's no sense so intimate and mysterious as smell. Unlike other senses, smell is wired directly to the emotional centers in our brain. The reason for this remains obscure, but the setup gives odors an uncanny power to unlock hidden memories. So similarly shaped molecules can have quite different odors and molecules that look nothing alike can smell almost the same. Um, but thanks for an innovative new study, scientists have finally gotten some traction on olfaction. I don't like, like that. that. No. Uh, <laughs> allowing them to match specific chemical features, specific odors for the first time. So the study began when sensory scientists at Rockefeller University recruited 49 volunteers to rate the smells of 476 chemicals. The subjects ranked the intensity and pleasantness of each, then classified the scents using 19 descriptors, including fish, sour, sweaty, bakery, and decayed. <laughs> I feel like I don't like that there is a uh, what's that? It's an asymmetrical construction in that some of those are adjectives, some yes. of those are nouns, yeah. some of those are a building, some really of those are a- all over the place. Mm. So the scientists also mapped out the chemical geometry of all the molecules, including the identity of every atom within them. As a next step, the researchers turned to an unlikely source for help: artificial intelligence. So. <laughs> Uh, in this case, the Rockefeller team challenged computer geeks to find correlations in their data between odor and chemical structure. 18 teams accepted the challenge uh, with a bunch of different places doing who cares. Um, then they gathered input from all the teams to further investigate the chemical nature of smell. A few trends became clear immediately. Small molecules, for example, tended to produce much more intense smells than larger ones. Having polar groups within the molecule, so regions of strong positive or negative charge, such as phenols, anols, and carboxyls, also ratcheted up the smell's intensity. When it came to matching odors to structures, the computers had the easiest time predicting the smell of 3-methylcyclohexanon, which is a camphor-like odor, and ethylheptanoate, which is sweep smells like sweet grape um the hardest molecules to predict included l-cysteine which smells like rotten eggs Uh, the 19 broad descriptors of odors also fell into two clusters those hard to guess wood uranus and musky Mm -hmm. um, and those easy to guess fruit spices burnt and garlic (laughs) the garlic prediction is is especially interesting for periodic table buffs since it explains one of the table's great mysteries why tellarium element 52 smells like the most pungent garlic on earth chemists exposed to tellarium often reek like garlic for weeks or or (laughs) even months afterwards the smell is so overwhelming that according to legend a few researchers have been driven to suicide that is a hell of a legend. Yep. Um, so the Rockefeller study revealed that the presence of sulfur atoms is strongly associated with garlic smells, and tellarium sits just two spots below sulfur on the periodic table, so it's no surprise that the nose would interpret tellarium and sulfur compounds in similar ways. One surprise for the smell scientists was that the subunits of larger, more complicated molecules didn't seem to interact much. 
Instead, each part produced an odor in the nose more or less independently of the other parts. The overall smell was therefore the simple sum of each autonomous section. Uh, they go on to say, the human nose sometimes gets a bum rap as a weak, ineffectual organ. Uh, although we're nowhere near as talented as, say, bloodhounds, humans actually have pretty sharp noses. A 2014 study estimated that we can distinguish roughly one trillion different scents. That's a lot. There's a lot. I feel like personally, with my nose and language skills, yeah. 15. I reckon you absolutely nailed it. Yeah. That's it. That's all of them. And who would need any more than that? Oh, my God. You've got your classic smells. You've got musky. you got urine. you yep. got wood. Yep. you got sweaty. Garlic. Yep. Fish. Bakery. Uh, new car. London. Hot plastic. <laughs> That's about it. Yep. So, that brings me to the, the, last, uh, the last smell in a series of very unpleasant smells, again by, um, by old mate Derek Lowe, and that's thioacetone. Uh, it doesn't like to ex- exist as a free compound. Um, attempts to crack this thioacetone monomer itself have been made, um, but then that's when people start diving out of windows and vomiting into waste baskets. <laughs> so the quality of the data begins to deteriorate. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. No one's quite sure what the actual odorant is, and no one has much desire to find out either. There are sound historical reasons for this reluctance. The canonical example... Uh, is the early work in the German city of Freiburg in 1889, which quotes the first-hand report. This reaction produced an offensive smell which spread rapidly over a great area of the town, causing fainting, vomiting, and a panic evacuation. Um, and... <laughs> An 1890 report from the Whitehall Soap Works in Leeds refers to the odour as fearful. (laughs) (laughs) Fearful odour. Fearful odour. That's a fucking H.P. Lovecraft story. Um, So the compound shows up sporadically in the literature until the mid-1960s when several groups looked into thiocatones as sources of new polymers. The most in-depth analysis took place at the Esso Research Station in Abingdon, UK, where Victor Burnup and Kenneth Latham got to experience the Freiburg horror for themselves, and I quote, <laughs> Lucky them. Uh, recently, we found themselves with an odour problem beyond our worst expectations. During ex- early experiments, a stopper jumped from a bottle of residue and, although replaced at once, resulted in an immediate complaint of nausea and sickness from colleagues working in a building 200 yards away. <laughs> Two of our chemists who had done no more than investigate the cracking of minute uh, amounts of thioacetane found themselves the object of hostile stares in a restaurant and suffered the humiliation of having a waitress spray the area around them with a deodorant. The odors defied the expected effects of dilution since workers in the laboratory did not find the odors intolerable and genuinely dis- denied responsibility since they were working in closed systems. To convince them otherwise, they were dispersed with other observers around the laboratory at distances up to a quarter of a mile, and one drop of either acetone gem dithiol or mother liquors from a crude trithioacetane crystallizations were placed on a watch glass in a fume cupboard. The odor was detected downwind in seconds. Good so one, Lord. one drop indoors, and people a quarter of a mile away can smell it straight away. That is absolutely terrifying. Uh, So he asks, how do you work with something that smells like hell's dumpster? (laughs) 
like this. Um, so the offensive odors released by cracking trithioacetone to, preter- uh, to prepare linear polythioacetone are confined and eliminated by working in a large glove box with an alkaline permanganate seal, decontaminating all apparatus with an alkaline permanganate, eliminating obnoxious vapors with nitrous fumes generated by a few grams of copper in HNO3, and destroying all residues by running them into the center of a wood fire in a brazier. <laughs> and that is that is the smelliest thing that I could find. I mean, so, hypothetically... Have we run out of space on the periodic table to keep making that same move to find to keep going yet down. smellier things? I, I believe I don't know what's under what's under uh, that tellarium I, under. I haven't had a look at a periodic table in uh, a couple let's, of years. Let's fire that bad boy up. Oh wow! Last time I looked, there was only like ten things on there. <laughs> They've gone wild. So polonium, I think, underneath. Sure. I think you start getting into radioactive stuff yeah. then, and then the stuff that doesn't exist. <laughs> the hypothetical stuff that we know should exist, yeah. but uh, we've never All been we able to All we know is that make. it's going to stink like hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, for some reason, based on uh, what you had put in the chat, I was anticipating maybe some sort of celestial body in space that smells unbelievably bad. It's oh, sort of Futurama style. It's sort of a garbage ball yeah. moving through space. Yeah. Uh, but no, this is something we make for fun, for yeah. yucks. For <laughs> Good <laughs> kinds of yucks. Imagine if you like... What, why haven't we weaponized that? Is there some sort of Geneva Convention rule about dropping just like a really potently bad smell into people? You have hundreds of people just vomiting all over well, the place. Yeah, I mean, because I think... Um, so that would go under the the heading of of biological warfare, right? Which is sure. which is, again under Geneva is not is not permitted. But biological agents tend to work on actually poisoning you and, and killing you, sort of thing. Which I, I really wanted to find an example of us just like stinking the place out, and yeah. and that being the main mechanism. Yeah, there's no irritant. There's no anything else. It's yeah. just literally the smell the, is so fucking smell, bad. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, potentially you could do with this stuff, but I think there's a there's probably a limit to what you can achieve. Sure. And like you can shoot a guy with bullets, you just can't, you know, fucking... Yeah. Yeah. War. Pretty silly. Mm. That's my take on it. Well, thank you so much for telling me about that. Oh, thank you. Love to learn. Uh, thank you, the listener, for joining us for another episode of The Theophiles. Uh, we're probably just going to keep doing these, I think. They're yeah. very nice. Yeah. I'm sure Andrew and Lucy will come up with their own thing that they like doing. Yeah. Um, and good luck to them. It'll be called The Fart Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they read, do script read-throughs of Adam Sandler movies. <laughs> so look forward to that. Uh, this is a bonus episode, isn't it? I think so. Thanks for subscribing. Really Thank appreciate you. that. Smooch, smooch. We'll bloody catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.